you uh, brought your Bible with you, I'm going to ask you to go to the book of Luke. No Romans this morning. I told you we weren't going to do predestination on Mother's Day. It's my gift to you, right? Um, we're not in Romans this morning. We're going to be in Luke. But a couple details before we get there. There's some inserts in your bulletin this morning. And men especially, I want you to pay attention to this first one. Maybe you didn't look in the bulletin, but there's an insert in there for trout camp. Uh, guys, there's a fishing weekend coming up in a couple weeks, and you can see the dates on there. It's the first weekend in June, if that works for your calendar. Ken Reader's putting that together along with a few other guys, and you can look at all the details. It's June 1 through 3, but you've got a couple weeks now to get your, uh, your reservation in if you're interested in doing that and being part of it. The other insert that's in your bulletin is uh, related to the groundbreaking. Next weekend, if you show up here for church, you will be by yourself because we're all going to be out at the new property, right? We have a groundbreaking ceremony on next Sunday at 11 o'clock in the morning. So not 11.30, but 11 o'clock, and all four services are coming together for that. If you look at that insert, you get the details about the food that will be there and the places you can sit and the places you can park your car. And we can have a groundbreaking ceremony because we had a vote last weekend, right? And did you get the email about the vote? Maybe some of you saw. Who knows what the percentage was of the vote? 99%, yeah. 90, isn't that not amazing? Wow. Yeah. No golf claps, you guys. That's what Michael says. No golf claps. So 99%, and, and we were hoping for something over 90 would be just tremendous. We were praying for God to give one more green light, and then 99% of the church. So there was almost 700 people here last week, and just an enormous response from people saying, let's get that thing built. Let's, let's go with it and move forward. So looking forward to celebrating with you next week with all four services, uh, what God is doing among us and the way that he's showing himself powerful. It would be an incredible opportunity to really celebrate and look forward to the future. So I'm going to dive into this um, with you in Luke chapter 7. Maybe while you're turning there, if you happen to be sitting with your mom, turn to her right now and say, thank you for putting up with me. Right? A few of you doing that. <laughs> thank you for putting up with me, mom. Because we can, we can tend to challenge our moms, can't we? So we need a day like this to really celebrate them well. Here's a question we've been asking over the last two weeks. How do I better put God on display? As I look at Romans 9, we were looking at the culmination of what we spent time with last week and the week before, asking ourselves this important question that if I'm a Christ follower, shouldn't other people see Christ on display in me? How do I do that better? And that's a really intimidating question for this reason. Because he's God, and we're not, and yet we've got to put him on display? That's a really tall order, because we're changeable, and he's not changeable as we are. God's not unstable, and God's not unreliable. He never changes. So he says that in Malachi 3.6, I, the Lord, do not change. So God's constant, therefore it should be no surprise that when you examine the life of Jesus, you find that he's constant also. Hebrews 13, 8, Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. God the Father, God the Son, never changing. So for me, that really means something significant because my culture changes. Your culture changes. Society changes. Our jobs change. Our address changes. 
Our relationships change. Everything around us changes. Earthly leaders come and go. But God is ceaseless in His nature and His character. What will that be like in eternity one day? To be with a God who is constantly reliable. Never changing from everlasting to everlasting. He's God. Psalm 13 brings that point out. The loving kindness of the Lord is from everlasting to everlasting. If you look at the Hebrew language, that word everlasting is the word olam. You, don't, you won't see it in your notes and you won't see it on the screen. It's just O-L-A-M. Olam to olam. Vanishing point to vanishing point. Meaning there's no distance where you can look that you can see change in God. From vanishing point to vanishing point, olam to olam, He's always the same. And because He never changes, we can always believe Him. Amen? Always. We can always trust Him. He will never betray you. So I continue asking, how do I put a God like that on display? If all I know is change and He never changes, how do I exalt Him? Well, very simply, here's the thought, and it's not simple to do, but here it is simply. We're called to act like Him, and that is hard to do, but yet that's what we're called to, to act like Him. So from a biblical perspective, you bring glory to God when you act like He acts, when you do what He does. And by that, I don't mean playing God. When I was 10 years old, believe me, all these stories that I share about my childhood and my background, they're all true. And, and this one is just as bizarre as the rest. So when I'm 10 years old, and my family's never heard this one before, um, I'm watching the Ten Commandments. You remember the, the old movie, Cecil B. DeMille? I think it was made in the 1960s. And, and fast forward in time, and my parents had it on television. I'm watching. I'm absolutely fascinated with it, seeing Moses do what he's doing. Charlton Heston plays Moses. And watching the children of Israel being released from Egypt. But here's what really caught my attention through my 10-year-old eyes. I watched Moses go out to the edge of the wilderness with these people in tow behind him, some three million people, and they come up against the Red Sea. And then God gives him specific instructions. Moses, here's what you're going to do. You're going to take your rod, your staff, and you're going to hold it out over that ocean. And when you do that, I'm going to cause all of nature to change. Everything will respond through my word because of your obedience to me. So Moses, you go do exactly what I tell you to do. And what burned in my mind as a 10-year-old is watching Moses with his robe flowing behind him, his big silver hair, and his rod being held out over the ocean. So I thought, I'm going to do that. I'm going to try that myself. So I watched, no kidding, I watched for weeks and weeks waiting for the right storm, watching. And I watched and I watched and I lived in western Michigan up in Whitehall and storms come across Lake Michigan with incredible fury. And I saw this storm building in the southwest and the black clouds are beginning to billow and I can see the swirl going on and I'm thinking, this is it, this is my moment. So I run out to the garage and I grab my dad's best shovel and I take it and I snap the head off the shovel. So I've got my staff, right? And I go back in the house and I grab my mom's bathrobe and I put my mom's robe on, right? <laughs> 
I've got the Moses robe and I've got the Moses rod and I run out to the backyard and I go up what is an incline back in the orchard that belongs to my uncle and there's a hill there and the wind is blowing and I can see the grass moving back and forth and I'm watching the clouds billow and build and build and so as a 10 year old I'm fighting against the wind because by this point the wind is 35 miles an hour and I'm pushing my hair is blowing back and I'm feeling like Moses and I hold the rod out and I said storm stop and it didn't and it blew me over backwards and I realized I can't play God and that's not what scripture is talking about when it says we're supposed to imitate God when we're supposed to put on a Godness that everlasting to everlasting character that we see when we're told there's loving kindness how do I do that you will bring glory to God you will put God on display especially when you imitate Jesus so we find a commandment in Philippians 2 5 it says have this attitude in yourself what attitude well, the one that was in Christ Jesus. Now, maybe if you're a church person, you've read that verse a lot. But maybe you've never spent time with that word attitude, which is the word phreneo. In the, in the Greek language, it's not just putting your mindset on something. There's an action that goes along with it. You're looking at the definition, and the definition is telling you, put your mind in a certain disposition. But as a result of that, the things that you think that you determine to do, you will action them out. You will carry them out. So when we're told have this attitude in you, have this mindset, it's a mindset with an action that goes along with it. God tells us we will bring glory to God when we do that, when we act like He acts. So because Jesus is God, we see a God freneo constantly when we look at Jesus. There's a loving kindness that Jesus puts on display. And we're going to see how he does that in Luke chapter 7 this morning. He, he does this because he sets the example for us. Because we're told that we're made in his image. And I'm not talking about the original creation. You remember the original creation from Genesis chapter 1. When God said specifically in verse 26, let us make man in our image according to our likeness, right? There's that kind of made in the image of God, but we know about the fall. And because of the fall of man, we don't bear that image anymore. We've got sin on us. But gratefully, Jesus comes, and Jesus restores us to the image of God. If we're a follower, He makes us a new creation, and He restores the new self. He puts us back in that place where we've got that God-likeness. So we're told this in Ephesians 4.24, put on the new self, which is, and there it is, the likeness of God that has been created in righteousness and holiness of the truth. That's the expectation of us. So you and I are recreated to be in the likeness of God, to carry a God image wherever we go. So where He is sacrificial, He asks us to be the same. What you just saw Derek and Kristen do with Caden is a sacrificial act. It's a dedication, a giving over. God, whatever you want to do with Him, He's yours. We dedicate him to you all the days of his life. Every parent that stood here over the course of the weekend did the exact same thing. Where God is sacrificial, he asks us to be the same. He is relational, he asks us to be the same. He is faithful, he asks us to be the same. Where he's gentle, he asks us to be the same. And he wouldn't ask that of us if he didn't know that we're capable of it. Because of the power of the Holy Spirit that's in us, we can do that. 
Now, clearly, we get the best image of what that looks like in Jesus because He's the God-man. God the Son becomes Jesus the man. We have a God-man putting God on display. So let's see how that bears out in Luke chapter 7, verse 11. Soon afterwards, he went to a city called Nain, and his disciples were going along with him, accompanied by a large crowd. Now, soon after, soon after Jesus has healed a servant, he's been in Capernaum. And in Capernaum, he sets out on this journey. And it's no more than a day. It's 25 miles from Nain to Capernaum. So Jesus arrives at the city gates kind of late in the day. And he's got this large crowd in tow behind him. Why Nain? I mean, this is a backwater town. Why is he going there? Well, understand that everything in God's plan is fixed. He's sovereign. And so he has a purpose for everything he does. Perfect intentions. There's no random thoughts with God whatsoever. So God doesn't miss any details, even if right now this morning you feel like your world is spiraling out of control. God is not freaking out. It's not like, oh, no, I had no idea that was going to happen. He's completely aware. He's completely dialed in. The complexity is absolutely staggering to our minds, but for God, it's not a problem. So that means it should be no surprise when we look at the life of Jesus that he's the exact same way utterly determined, utterly focused with the same resolve. Go with me to verse 12. As he approached the gate of the city, a dead man was being carried out, the only son of his mother, and she was a widow, and a sizable crowd from the city was with her. In this particular era in the first century, when there was a funeral, the entire community came out to support the family. It wasn't just friends or acquaintances or other extended family members, but the community would show up and support the individual. So this is a really big crowd. This is very emotional, lots of commotion, and she's mourning for a child, her only child, which is especially bitter. And verse 14 indicates this guy is actually a young man, probably in his mid-20s. So she's lost her husband, now she's lost her son, Jesus has left from Capernaum in the morning, and he's got this five, six-hour walk ahead of him because the average human walks four miles an hour, and he's got a 25-mile journey, so what, seven hours, six hours? And he's going to arrive late in the afternoon. Very likely, this young man died in the morning, the same day that Jesus starts out on this journey. Now, in the Middle East, still today, this is true, they bury the dead the day that they die. They did it in the first century. They would anoint the body, wrap it in clothing, and hire the mourners. And so they would pick up a flute player. They would pick up a cymbal player. They hire the professional mourners to come along with them. They probably don't need it in this case because she's devastated. And we're told in verse 12 that they encounter each other at the gate of the city, which means the head of Main Street, which means the funeral entourage has already made its way all the way around the city. And now they're on their way out of the city to the cemetery. And Jesus runs into a widow. Now, in the first century, most women without a man would be destitute because the system wasn't set up for women to go out and earn a living. They were very dependent upon the men in their life unless their parents had passed down an inheritance to them. So here's a woman living in a backwater town, and she's at her only son's funeral procession with no financial security and no support and no future family. Now she's not only alone and in her sorrow, 
But she's in a system that has no mechanism to care for the widows. So from a human standpoint, you might be looking at the story saying, this is amazing, because if you ever wanted Superman to show up, this would be the moment. She's going to run into Jesus here? Well, there's no coincidence with God, is there, church? There's no coincidence. So God intends to be there in that moment. And what you see in the next verse is that Jesus is totally dialed in to this woman's pain. Go with me to verse 13. When the Lord saw her, he felt compassion for her and said to her, Do not weep. Now, you've probably been to lots of funerals like I have. And we see humanity on display at funerals where someone inadvertently will come up around an individual who's mourning and say to them, don't cry. It's going to be okay. Uh, In that moment, the person wants to say what's going on inside. No, it's not. It's not going to be okay. Why? Because those words ring hollow. The reason we use that phrase is we're uncomfortable. We don't know what else to say. And so we want to comfort them and bring comfort. We'll just put the pause on that thought for a minute. We'll come back to it. You've got these large crowds, a crowd that's walking out in the opposite direction. You've got the crowd coming in that's with Jesus, and you've got two crowds with two dispositions, the Jesus crowd that's really, really happy. And then you've got the mourning crowd. There's no joy and there's no hope, and these two crowds meet head-on at the gate. And Jesus' followers, very likely just out of social politeness, step aside and and shuffle off because we always do that when a hearse pulls into the intersection. Nobody's going to stop a funeral. Uh, Think through the ramifications of what we've been talking about in this setting. How do I put God on display? What would you do in this moment when there's trauma And there's pain, and there's suffering, and it's visceral. Here's what I know from studying this story for lots and lots of years. What I watch when I see Jesus is I see that He does not shuffle aside. He doesn't move. He stays right in place, and He locks eyes with this woman whose grief is crushing her because the trauma of life on this planet has just claimed another victim. So when we're told in that previous verse that the Lord saw her, it's the word harao. It's not in your notes. And it simply means this, to lock eyes, to stare, to the degree that you discern. So this isn't just Jesus having a physical observation. He sees her. He really sees her. He sees what's going on in her pain. It's not just physical, it's emotional, and it's intense. Now, this is a really rare story in the Bible. Because as you read it, you discover all of a sudden, wait, there's nobody stepping in and asking Jesus to fix this. No one has run up to him and said, wow, the Son of God is here. What will you do to rescue? He's just there. And nobody says, will you intervene? But here's what you should be noticing, is that God in this moment has his eye on her in the midst of her distress. And she does not escape his focus. She is his focus. She's right at the center. She's lost her husband. Now she's lost her one and only, her son, In our day and age, we have family members who will go out of a funeral. At the end of the funeral, family will go out first. 
at the beginning of a funeral, the family comes in to lead the casket. The exact same is true in the first century. That tradition has been in place a long time, that the family would go ahead of and the casket would come behind. So the woman is leading the procession just because it's customary. She's the first one through the gate. Jesus is right there coming into the gate. And there's something in Jesus that is true of God, and it should not escape, escape your attention. When you read, he felt compassion for her. Just bear down on those words. Here's why I draw it to your attention, because in the English language, we use words really flippantly. We are very loose with our language. But these words are chosen for a reason. This word compassion is speaking of something very specific that's going on with God, and you need to understand His nature here. I know it's a big $10 word when you look at it, and it says, it's, it's very deliberate in its explanation, though. This particular word is describing a visceral reaction on the part of God. This is your God, New Hope. There's a gut ache. God's saying, you want to put me on display? You be dialed into trauma like I'm dialed into it. A gut ache that churns the stomach. See, against a backdrop of world religions in which we're told that God is impersonal, He's distant, He's unaware, He's detached, He doesn't really care, we find the God of the Bible saying, I am merciful. I'm full of loving kindness. It goes on for generations to generations, from vanishing point to vanishing point. It never goes out of existence. See, there aren't saviors of the world in other world religions. But here in the God of the Bible, you find the merciful God saying, I want to intervene. This is an incredibly powerful image here. Because you're looking at the God of the Bible with his heart ripped open for what this woman is enduring. Because it's not supposed to be this way. This is the God of life. He's the one who spoke everything into existence. He's saying, this death doesn't belong here. I didn't create death. It came with sin. So the nature of God is on display in compassion with a mom who's in distress, who's being robbed of her joy, and she thinks she's alone. But God knows her in the moment of her pain, and he's bearing her pain with her. So ask yourself right now, church, I don't know what you're going through. If you're going through a painful time and you think God's not aware, you read this story and you understand God sees you, he knows you, and he's completely dialed in to what you're walking through. That's the God of the Bible. So when Jesus says, don't cry, on one level, it's deeply human, and we get to see the God-man feeling humanity's pain, but on another level, it's not callousness, and it's not empty words. It's not someone who's not sure what to say. Spoken by anyone else, these words would be empty, but God moves beyond the words. Watch, verse 14, and he came up and touched the coffin, and the bearers came to a halt. Stop right there. That's just part A. In the Bible, you will find in the Old Testament, especially when people were living under the law, there are 350-plus negative commands. There's a lot of positive commands, but the negative commands sound like this. Do not go there. Do not touch that. 
do not be part of. And among the 350 at the very top of the list, in the top 10, we shall say, were some of the ones that you found under the law, like in Numbers 19, 13, about coming in contact with dead bodies. Look at this. Anyone who touches a corpse, the body of a man who has died, and does not purify himself, defiles the tabernacle of the Lord, and that person shall be cut off. See, all those dynamics are going on in this setting. All those things that these Jewish people living in this land of Judah know. They know these rules. So just imagine this with me. Let's go fast forward to 2018. Imagine it's a Friday afternoon and it's around 5.15. And you've either been at work all day, you've been at school, or you've been out shopping, you've been doing whatever you do, and you're ready to get home. And it's rush hour. And you're headed for an intersection, and there's people cutting you off in traffic, and horns are beeping, lights are changing, and people are texting while they're driving, and they're not supposed to be, and you're getting really irritated with this rush hour traffic, and it's backing up, and it's backing up, and you look into the intersection, and a hearse pulls in. In that moment, we identify directly with the setting that's going on here. Because when a long black hearse comes into the middle of traffic, everyone gets the same thought in their mind. Oh, yeah. What I was rushing to is not all that important. There's life and death in front of me. My schedule is not that busy that I can't stop. So you have the hearse in the middle of the intersection. And you find yourself back in the first century, and these people are transporting a corpse of a young man with a mom who's wailing because her world has just collapsed. And God walks up and puts his hand on the hood of the car. He's touching the coffin. Comes in physical contact with the very thing everybody says, you're not supposed to do, and everything stops. Can you imagine the hush over that crowd, verse 14, he touched the coffin. Now, most of you are church people. You've probably read this story, studied this story, maybe you've heard it taught many times. Let me ask you this question, New Hope. If you've read this story before and you know it, yes or no answer, can Jesus do what he's about to do? Okay, I'll ask it one more time. Can Jesus do what he's about to do? Yes, okay, it's not a trick question. I'm not setting you up, okay. Here's the second part of it. Can Jesus do what he's about to do without touching the coffin? Absolutely. So there must be something huge going on behind this touch when the law says don't, and you have the king of life there, and he can stand outside Lazarus's tomb and say, Lazarus, come forth, and Lazarus comes forth. But in this moment, he's touching. What do you think is going on here? Here's what I understand from, I've studied this a lot. He's taking a position of authority. By this action, it is his purpose to take control of chaos because this woman is vulnerable. So God has become her defender where there is no defender, where there is no one to catch her backside. She has her friends, her comforters, but God has just stepped into the middle of the sitting. 
To the crowd, what Jesus is doing seems utterly useless. What? What is he doing? It seems socially inappropriate. Why would he do that? Among the list of social do's and don'ts, we have that list in our mind. We know the things that we imagine we're not supposed to do or we can do in social settings. Among the top of them is do not stop a funeral. Don't pull your car out into the intersection and cut off the hearse. Why is he doing this? Aren't you glad that Jesus isn't constrained by what we think is appropriate? That he's never held back by what man imagines or what man supposes to be right? Finish out verse 14 now, part B. And he said, young man, I say to you, arise. What would that be like in eternity? To hear the voice of God call across the corridors of time to you. Now, he hasn't mentioned this young man's name. And yet this young man knows it's supposed to be him. Wherever he's at in eternity, he responds because the creator has just called him back from the other side. There aren't dead people popping up all over the countryside. It's just this guy. Jesus has said, arise without a name. Imagine the one who spoke planets into existence calling you. You know that he did that, right? That he breathes out stars. Look at me on the screen at Psalms. Psalms says this in chapter 33, by the word of the Lord, the heavens were made by the breath of his mouth. All the stars came into existence. That one now calls across the corridors of eternity. That same one says, death, you have no power here. I call life, arise. And there's an explosion of life from the mouth of the great I am, the one that you just sang about, the great I am. That song preaches in a nanosecond. That heart that was decaying muscle inside the chest cavity, it begins to beat the gray, cold flesh, it begins to warm. The eyes pop open. He's staring into a Mediterranean blue sky because Jesus said, arise. In the last day, all of us will hear that same declaration. His voice is going to thunder across eternity and all creation will respond. Every person who has ever lived will resurrect some to eternity with God in heaven and some to stand before the great white throne in judgment. Because according to God's own word, John 5, 28, for an hour is coming in which all who are in the tombs will hear his voice and will come forth. And the next verse is just absolutely amazing. Verse 15, the dead man sat up and began to speak. <laughs> is, that, is that not stunning? I hope you never become callous to the Bible. Because you won't read a statement like that too often. You're not going to pick up the Lansing State Journal this afternoon and go to the obituary section and read that phrase, right? It would totally freak you out. It would freak out the person who wrote it. You aren't going to buy a magazine this week and read that statement. That's not a statement you hear very often. You hear it in God's Word. Now, it says he began to speak. Would you not have loved to hear that conversation, right? We're not told what he says. We don't know what happens next, but here's what I do know. When dead people begin to talk, funerals stop, right? He's going to break it up. There's no reason for it. 
To watch the greatest Mother's Day gift ever given, verse 15, and Jesus gave him back to his mother. That's a Mother's Day gift like no other I've ever heard of. Now, I want to hit the pause button with you on this particular component that we've just talked about. Let me segue to a component of the Bible that many people misunderstand regarding women and the way Jesus treats women. It is absolutely unprecedented in human history the way that Jesus cared for and drew women into his circle at a time when giving respect to women was of no priority whatsoever. You need to know, if, whether you're a student of history or not, that everything changed on this planet as a result of the arrival of Jesus. Where individuals were disregarded and disrespected, Jesus elevated them. So I've had individuals approach me, especially women approach me, saying, it looks like as I read the Bible that God is gender-favoring men and gender-disfavoring women. It looks like he's favoring one and putting another one down. How do I understand that? And if you've got somebody in your life like that, hear this thought. Just reason this through with me. If God is a discriminator towards women, and the greatest message of God is the resurrection of Jesus Christ, then why in the world did he trust the message of the resurrection to a group of women to go out and share the message with everyone else? Constantly, Jesus elevating women. When the woman with the alabaster jar of oil came to him to anoint him, everybody was trashing her. But Jesus said, stop! Wherever I am spoken of in the future, the story of this woman will be told. When the woman at the well came to Jesus from Samaria, Samaria, who knew nothing about Jesus, Jesus turns that woman into the first missionary to go back into the nation of Samaria to say, come see this man who has told me amazing things about myself. Jesus constantly drawing women in and elevating them. So I'm just here to point out to you, I can tell you this. When you look at the God of Bible of the Bible, he is not gender disfavoring one and gender favoring another. He created man and woman. We are distinctly unique. I will tell you specifically, I would never be here today were it not for a very godly mother and a very godly wife who have encouraged, and my wife says amen. <laughs> Constantly encouraging and strengthening you're breaking up my point, woman. <laughs> so good. <laughs> okay, let's finish this out. Verse 16. Fear gripped them all, and they began glorifying God, saying, A great prophet has arisen among us, and God has visited his people. The report concerning him went out all over Judea and in all the surrounding district. Let me take you back to that first, first section of that statement. Fear gripped them all. And they began what, church? They began glorifying. And you're thinking right now, well, of course they are. He raised a dead guy. We got, if I could put God on display like that, everybody would be glorifying God. And if that's the only thing you're taking away from this, you're missing it. See, the glory of God is put on display among those people because of the resurrection. But as you've seen, it's not just the miracle. God has stepped into a situation that has great trauma, and he's bringing order out of chaos, and he brings compassion and tenderness. And I've got to tell you, men, as a guy, 
I need to be reminded of that. Because I'm totally into the Jesus that pulls out the whip and flips over the money changers' tables. Like, yeah, Jesus, you get them. You kick them out of there. My Father's house shall be a house of prayer. I'm totally into the God who changes weather and holds up rods and parts the Red Sea. I got that as a 10-year-old. But as a guy, I need to be reminded, and I see it through my wife, and I see it through my daughters, and I see it through you ladies. I need to be reminded of the tender, compassionate side of Jesus because the defender Jesus is also the tender Jesus. And he's just put it on display here. So I'm praying for you this week, this way. I'm praying for myself this way. As I look for ways to display God better, that I would look at those components and say, okay, God, there's a characteristic that I could be better at. I'm going to pray for you that way. Let's pray together. Father, I think that very likely many of us in this room know this story so well that we're tempted to dial it out and, and maybe even assume we know things. But you always surprise us with how alive your word is and the things you can teach us. So I pray especially for perhaps maybe the male half of this room that we would be much more alert to the way you uniquely created women and the way that you show yourself through them in their walk with you. But, Father, for every one of us, male and female alike, that we would be incredibly deliberate about looking for ways to put you on display because you are the great I Am, and you are worthy of all the glory that we can bring your direction. So, God, I pray that this afternoon and tomorrow and Tuesday and Wednesday that we would indeed do that. We would not quickly forget this story, but rather we would be looking for ways to exalt the name the one who is worthy of all praise, the one who has redeemed us. God, help us with that. We know that you will do it through the power of your Holy Spirit if we just lean into your strength. So we pray for that in the matchless name of the one, the Lord Jesus Christ and all God's people said, amen. Have a great week, New Hope.